0: You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org slash donate and contribute today.
1: Well, good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of the Encounter, I want to welcome you to In Search of the Other America. I'm John Balzbaugh and I will moderate this event. With me are Chris Arnati and Patrick Deneen. Chris Arnati is a freelance writer and photographer and the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Backrow America, published last year by Sentinel Books. He has a PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins University, and worked for 20 years as a trader at a prestigious Wall Street bank before leaving in 2012 to document poverty and addiction in America. Patrick J. Deneen is the professor of political science and the David A. Potenziani Memorial College Chair of Constitutional Studies at the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of four books, co-editor of three volumes and numerous articles, including Why Liberalism Failed published in 2018 by Yale University Press. His scholarly interests include ancient, modern, and American political thought, religion and politics, literature and politics, and democratic and liberal theory. Join me in welcoming them. So we'll start with a a question to Chris. Uh, one of the greatest uh, divides in the country right now is the cultural divide between what Chris has called America's back row and its front row. And you open your book by saying that you walked into the Hunts Point neighborhood of the Bronx because you were told not to. You were told it was too dangerous, it was too poor, and you were too white. For those who haven't read the book, can you just start by telling the story of what happened after you took that step of walking into Hunts Point, and maybe share with us just a little bit about what you learned.
2: Uh, Okay, thank you. First of all, thank you for all being here. Um, Yeah, um, I I haven't been to New York in a while, and I'm I'm reminded when I was in New York, I lived over in Brooklyn Heights, not far from here, and I had a very good life. Um, I worked on Wall Street. I had a five-bedroom apartment. But to relieve stress, I would just walk all around New York, and often 20-mile walks. um, I would take take my token at the time and go to the end of the subway and just walk home. Um, What I've always loved about New York and why why I remember why I'm here is you're forced to deal with things that you don't necessarily want to deal with when you walk in New York. Um, New York is basically a collection of um, Disparate neighborhoods stitched together by a, railroad, by a subway, um, and so I would do that. I would go into Queens, I would go into um, uh, go into um, far far Rockaways, and walk home, walk all the way to LaGuardia. And when I started realizing that what I really loved about those walks was not trying to get somewhere, but the people I met during those walks, um, it gave me into a glimpse of something that was not my life. Um, and as my career in Wall Street became less fulfilling to me, Um, I started finding those walks to be the part of my life that was the most fulfilling, the place where I actually um, met people, people I didn't necessarily intend to meet, um, and and talk to them about their lives. Um, And I eventually started carrying a camera around, and people would stop me and ask me to take their photos. And during that process of taking the photo, they would then tell me about their stories. And I started writing those stories down. Um, eventually, I realized I, I knew Queens, I knew, um, I, knew, I knew Brooklyn, I knew Manhattan, I didn't know the Bronx. And so, I remember telling somebody, I'm going to the Bronx and said, whatever you do, don't go to Hunts Point. So, I went to Hunts Point. <laughs> um, and Hunts Point, for those who you don't know, um, is New York City's poorest neighborhood. Um, it's stigmatized by all the things we stigmatize people for, crime, Um, poverty, addiction, sex work Um, and when I went in there I found those things and that's why people told me not to go there Um, but when I'm there I certainly saw those things but I also found what ultimately is the title of my my book Dignity. I found um, people who 35,000 people living in this community that were facing all sorts of hardships, all sorts of stigma, doing their best to maintain um, a sense of worth, uh, to maintain dignity. And one of the small things, and you know, I don't... It's a small thing, but it really matters to me, is there was a lot of beauty in Hunts Point, put together by, by basically the garbage of what we... we what the, the front row, the elites consider garbage. So, for instance, if you go into, there's a lot of auto body shops in Hunt Point. If you go into the auto body shops, I'm really I was fascinated by how beautifully aligned, basically artwork, were the different parts of the, the cars. And it wasn't accidental. People had actually care, carefully placed, you know, all the rear view mirrors and this beautiful, almost mosaic. Um, and so there was beauty in the auto body shops. And then there was also um, pigeons. I don't know if you notice it if you're in New York. People keep pigeons. Um, they keep them on their roofs, and so I remember looking these beautiful flocks of, of pigeons zooming overhead, and then I realized that they were kept by people as um, a hobby, um, and they were often kept by people who had nothing else. Um, they would find an abandoned building, put together these coops on top, collect 500, 600 pigeons and then train them to fly in these beautiful swirling arcs. So there was a lot of beauty there that I think most people would consider you know, flying rats um, or junkyards, but there was also dignity in the people trying to maintain a sense of community despite all the outside forces trying to stop them from maintaining community. But for me though, what really struck, stuck and what ended up starting this project of five or six years talking to people who generally aren't talked to was, there was a particular woman, um, her name's Takesha, and uh, she's a sex worker. And um, when I had first started going into Hunts Point, I would go and take pictures, hang out with the pigeon keepers, hang out with the junkyard, hang out with the people who take old Schwinn bicycles and turn them into beautiful um, works of art. And I had always kind of avoided her out of respect for what she did and given the obvious differences in our life. And I remember, um, that I write about this in the book, where she called me over and she said, hey, you know, come take my picture. You know, you know, and I took her picture and she told me about her life, as people did. And it was a, a life that was just um, filled with every tragedy you can imagine. And I remember, At the time, I'd always ask people to give me one sentence to describe themselves, And she said without missing a beat, um, I'm a prostitute, a child of God, and a mother of six. Boom. Just like that. And that friendship formed, as much as a friendship can form between me and her, um, where for the next three years, She guided me and introduced me to her, what basically is a street family of people who are heroin addicts, sex workers, Um, they make their money by stealing sometimes, Um, they live under a bridge, they live in abandoned buildings, they live in cars, Um, and I ended up quitting my job on Wall Street and spending basically three years in the Bronx um, with this 40 or 50, 60 people who are homeless addicts. and eventually, after that, I did that same project. Um, I put 350,000 miles on my car driving all
0: across the country. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. Patrick,
1: you've also written about this divide, um, that, that Chris encountered, though in a little, little bit of a different way. So I wonder if you could um, speak to what you describe in your book as a new aristocracy um, that I think is very similar to what Chris was describing as America's front row, maybe even intensified a little bit. Um, so the, maybe speak to how some of the things Chris encountered um, maybe our products or features of our culture, legacies of our tradition that tend to perpetuate that divide that would maybe keep us out of Hunt's point and vice versa. Yeah.
3: Well, first, um, not only thank you for being here, but um, thank the organizers for giving me the opportunity to share this stage uh, with Chris. Uh, I was invited to read Chris's book when it was still in galleys and to provide a blurb for it, which I did. So that's the one of the main reasons to buy the book is to, <laughs> is to read, read my eloquent blurb. Uh, uh, but I think in, in the course of writing, uh, thinking about the blurb, I think the first thing I said is this is a hard book to read. And it's a hard book to read because it confronts us with a world and with people that many of us in many ways would express a sympathy for, um, a desire to help and yet which many of us don't see, don't genuinely see and don't genuinely encounter Uh, And so Chris's book uh, is really a very powerful witness and testimony uh, to human dignity that's found anywhere and found, I think, probably everywhere, everywhere where human beings seek uh, this this fundamental thing that we desire, which is dignity. Let let me tackle your question by, in some ways, um, suggesting I think Chris um, Chris provides a kind of negative argument for what the, what the new aristocracy is, and I'm, I'm, or let's say the, the opposite argument. A couple of the stories of his, of his book stood out to me. One of them uh, was um, the story, stories he tells of young people who expressed to him a desire to go to college, to leave home, like I'm sure many of us have done, and to go away to college, but that they couldn't in many cases because they were taking care of a parent or taking care of a sibling, um, that they were bound in, in where they were, uh, and couldn't simply just leave. Uh, and there's, there's another interesting set of stories which were very close to home, literally close to home to me, near South Bend, Indiana, um, uh, in uh, Gary, Indiana, where we interviewed a number of people uh, who, whom he asked, uh, why haven't you left? And if you've ever been in or through Gary, Indiana, that might be a question you would pretty quickly uh, ask someone. Why haven't you gotten out of this this pretty horrific landscape? And it was amazing to hear those replies, which is that this is my home. This is where I grew up. This is my place. I think another thing that Chris articulates as well and explores are people who have opened up churches or religious communities, often in storefronts. Uh, and so for them, their faith keeps them in these places and working with people uh, who are uh, facing these, these many challenges. And it was, I think, especially these expressions of commitment to family, commitment to place, and commitment to faith, that I think it struck me was one way we could draw a contrast to what I describe as the new aristocracy. In each, in each of these cases, The experience of this experience of family, of place, and of faith, in in some ways, is an expression of our recognition that we are creatures of independence, creatures of dependency, that we are not creatures that are, in some ways, self making creatures, that we are born and that we remain dependent upon each other, dependent on the places from which we come, dependent uh, on a God who creates us. And in an interesting way, how is it that it came to be the uh, the fact that it's the back row people, as Chris calls them, that in some ways are some of the best exemplars of people who recognize this dependency, whereas in many ways it's the front row people who have come to believe and create a world in which the real sign of being a successful person is to, as much as humanly possible, to at least appear to be independent, to be autonomous, to be free of other human beings. So we've given a kind of place of pride to a condition that we could say is really a kind of exception to the rule, right? Who who among us is genuinely independent? Alistair McIntyre, my colleague at Notre Dame, philosopher, wrote a book called Dependent Rational Animals, in which he said this is the core and essence of what a human being is. We're creatures that are dependent upon one another. We're born dependent upon our parents. We are certainly dependent upon other people as we approach our deaths. But there's a very brief period of time, maybe when you're 28 to 35 years old, to all the people we saw at restaurants last night in New York City, <laughs> when you think you're independent, right? When you've left home and you feel full of your power and your independence. And what McIntyre observed is that we have built a civilization on the belief that the norm is to be 28 to 32 years old. What civilization can possibly survive 28 to 32 year olds sort of, in a sense, being in control or at least that ethos being in control? So I think in many ways the new aristocracy is a false conception of what it is to, to lead the good life, to be in a condition where you are independent of other human beings. And again, what's striking about Chris's book is that it's the people who are struggling at the margins who in some ways embody the sense of dependency and yet they're the people who are struggling at the margins. And It's the people who have at least created this faux condition of independence uh, that we regard as having succeeded in front row America.
2: Right. I mean, I would actually, I, I would frame, I frame it as um, I realize I didn't answer your first question, which is that I, my, my my thesis is basically we're divided by education, the front row, um, the schoolroom analogy, and then the back row, the people I ended up spending time with. Um, I'm very much from the front row, and then I spent the last seven eight years in the back row, but. You talk about dependency, and I think it's really fascinating to me that um, what defines the front row, in some senses, is, is um, I call it credentialism, is that we've basically defined success as by a, building a resume, and those things that you that basically, and, and, and by doing, and we have the power. We're the, we're the people who make the political policies in this world. We're the people who generally build the, the, the system that the back row has to live in. Um, and we just assume that everybody wants to get credentials. But we also assume that any non-credential forms of meaning, faith, race, and place, those things, and fam- that's community and family, is not valuable. So we don't, really, we don't really put it into our spreadsheets when we build these ways of thinking about how life exists. And the net effect is we've basically devalued these forms of meaning. That are, that are essential to basically <laughs> building a meaningful life. Um, especially for people who, who aren't born wealthy. I mean, you're gifted these things at birth. Th- th- there is no barrier to entry to these. And the Front Row has built this world in which um, it's not conducive to, fo- to forming community health. It's not conducive to those things you talked about because they don't think about it. You know you're supposed to, one, the biggest change for me writing this book is what you talked about in Gary, and I heard it over and over and over and over again is I remember when I was in um, somewhere I think the, it was ironically named Rootsville, I think Rootsville, um, and it was somewhere off some small town in Ohio, and I, I remember like I'd sit there writing down the stories of these people, and he's like, "Well, so I said, "Let me get this straight know I'm just going checking my notes again." You, um, um, you've um, you lived here all your life. He's like, no. I said, well, he goes, uh, I was born 10 miles down the road near the fairgrounds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, no, he didn't live here all his life. He moved 10 years, that's a different part of town, man. Or, um, Cairo, Cairo, Illinois is a part of, is it Illinois, Indiana? What's Chicago, Chicago is Illinois? Yeah. Yep. So it's Cairo, Illinois. It's, it's the southern tip Salt, of Illinois. Illinois. It's where the Ohio and, Ohio and Mississippi re- meet. Um, it, it's a book that I feature in my town. Uh, it's a town that I feature in my book and um, it's one of the most beautiful physical places because it's where it's a delta. It's, it's like a triangle where the Mississippi and Ohio meet, but it's got nothing now. It's Probably, the population has diminished from probably 50,000 to 4,000. Um, if you read my book, you'll know that the fact that it doesn't have a McDonald's tells you that it's, it's really struggling. Um, um, there's no hotels. There's one gas station. Um, there's a Dollar General, I think. Um, but it's almost all African-American. And, you know, you go there, and you talk to people who stay there, it's like, why are you still here? It's my home. You know? Or the young woman I was interviewing in the projects who said to me, again, the same thing. I said, You're from Cairo, right? You live our life. She said, No, I'm from I'm from the north side of Cairo, I'm not from here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that matters. And we in the front row we we celebrate change, physical change. We celebrate you know, when I worked at Wall Street, people would Brag about oh I you know I was just in Mayfair London and I I'm going to do a posting there and then I'm going to go to you know I'm going to do an expat package to Jakarta you know as if you know that's what you're supposed to do and if you stay in the same place um, you're somehow backwards and the policies we've built assume people are going to move They're just we're just widgets that can just mm-hmm. you know get up and move and that's extraordinarily disturbing to people who, that's all they have. You know, this, this community, this, 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 you know, Gary, Indiana, you know, you may drive through Gary, Indiana and not like it, and I, I spent about a month in Gary, Indiana, I absolutely like it, but it takes a while to learn, I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's their town, man. <laughs> and you just can't pick up and move, and so we just assume people can move, and we've built, we've built a society that requires movement to be successful. Um, and so, you know, you, you talk about the three things. Uh, I talk about the three things, faith, which for this crowd, I think, is is a bit of an outlier relative to most Americans. Most, most American, the successful Americans look down on faith. And so, but the, faith is also important in Cairo, it's important in Gary, it's important, it's just something that's gifted to you. You don't have to, you don't have to build a big resume to have it. And it's, it's been very disturbing to back row America to have these things that are central to them. It's, it's who they are, taken away from them. It's, it's, just, it's just, it's like taking away, it's like taking a front row person's resume and just ripping it off and said, no, you didn't go to Harvard actually. <laughs> you know,
0: that, that would gut you. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org slash donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Yeah, You know, so to pick up on that education, um,
1: I think both of you have suggested that one of the challenges to crossing these boundaries or one of the things that that, uh, makes this divide so sharp is different, um, even understandings of access to and success in navigating uh, the educational systems and uh, Patrick even quoted Wendell Berry saying most of the more middle class, upper middle class uh, students in American colleges, the front row. Um, are simply majoring in upward mobility, and I, I was struck by mobility you know it, but, but the whole notion is get a better job um, or get a better education so you can get a better job so you can have a better life. Um, can you speak more to the either of you to the the challenges that um, back row America would face in that even, even practically what school is like for them, how they think about it, um, and how things are sort of stacked against them?
2: I mean, you teach these children, right?
3: I do. I'm not sure I can necessarily speak to the challenges of back row America, although I assume I know them what they are pretty well by the kinds of students I see who are not from back row America generally.
2: Do they have, do they have a tough transition?
3: Uh, we don't. I mean, I, I, I've taught at Princeton, at Georgetown, and Notre Dame, and generally I think we don't right. see many students who have been in the back row. And in many ways today, we use the language of diversity, and I don't mean to slight the importance of diversity, but we would use the language of diversity um, to prove that we are actually not just, you know, drawing people from all the same places. But in fact, regardless of the, you know, my favorite example of this was I used to teach at Georgetown and the convocation every year, we'd, uh, the students would march in carrying flags from every state and country they came from and then we would have this wild effusion of how diverse we were. But then when you have students in the class, they were all basically from the same socioeconomic background. They all basically had the very same, very similar kinds of experiences. So there's a a deep preference, of course, and we could say systemically, we're seeking out institutions like these I've just named that I've taught at, elite institutions, are seeking out exactly the kind of person that's well equipped and has proven through their resume, through their high schooling, through their... Um, activities, their extracurriculars, that they are going to be good members in good standing of, of Front Row America. In other words, that they ha- they're capable of acquiring skills that are portable. That they, um, by, often by leaving, you know, these schools want to draw people from far away. This is one of the bragging points for these schools. By drawing students from far away, now they've proven that they have the ability to leave home. That they're not attached to any particular place. I once joked when I was teaching at Georgetown, a group of freshmen, I said, you know, you're all going to end up in one of five cities in the world. And I had a freshman raise his hand and said, what are the other two? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they know what they're designed to do and what, uh, and what, their, uh, and what their goal is. Uh, so I, you know, I think that it's precisely the kind of skill sets uh, that you bring. Um, to gain admittance to these institutions that, that already sort of puts the finger on the scale of whether or not you're going to be a member of the, of the front row or the back row.
2: And, and they're not gonna go back to their cities. I'm sorry? They're not gonna go back to the cities they came from.
3: Well, you know, I, I talk with students a lot about this. Uh, and it's really interesting because they recognize, and I know there are a lot of young people out here, and I'm sure they recognize it in themselves. They recognize that they, they have gifts and ambitions and those gifts and ambitions can probably only be best expressed in the econ- most economically vibrant places in our country. Or at least that's what they've been largely told. And what I, often, what I often have some agonizing discussions with students is the following question. You are probably one of the best students at your school to get into a place like Notre Dame, Harvard, uh, Princeton, and so forth. You're probably a person of enormous gifts and if you end up going to a place like New York and working in the industry you used to work in, going to DC and working for a senator's office. You'll be engaged in some work that's important, but you will not be the most important or one of the most important people in the place where you are. I mean, they all hope that they're gonna be Supreme Court justices or president or what you will, but in many cases they won't be. So the question that I often pose to them is if you went back to some, either if you came from a smaller town, a small city, if you go and move to some place like that, Indianapolis rather than Washington, D.C., would you not be contributing more, giving your enormous gifts to a place like that than mixing your enormous gifts in a place where um, it will probably be a little bit of a drop in the bucket? And I think for, for students, it's an agonizing question. And when it comes down to it, many of them do end up going to the bright lights big city, because. That's in many ways what I think is systemically we've been designed. uh, We've designed our elite uh, to think about as as uh, doing important work.
2: Right. I mean, I'll mention the. So what I saw. It's funny because. um, You know, when you spend time out there, there's people who just don't want to go to college, and that's right. That's all right, and you know, they don't even know. I mean, the, the thing we as a culture. They've been told over and over and over and over go to college, go to college, go to college, get educated. Guidance counselors, Oprah, (laughs) everybody, you know, everybody. And I don't want to be the person who says don't go to college. But, you know, I'll I'll talk about the two people you mentioned in the book. I I spent a lot of time at night in McDonald's and basically in loser neighborhoods. Um, And a lot of people do do that who don't have. um, who don't have a lot of money. And so I remember the one, the one young woman, she probably is 20, um, Mexican-American woman in, in, in East LA, um, sitting in the McDonald's and uh, she would see me every night sitting at the table typing up my notes. Um, she would be sitting there playing her Game Boy or her Switch. Or I think it was pre-Switch, so it was probably a Game Boy. Um, and then typing up on her computer and eventually, I asked her to take a picture of me at some point, and so we started talking, and she found out I was from New York City. And she said, you know, you know uh, she, she, was there, she was there every night because she didn't have, her parents didn't have Wi-Fi. Her parents didn't have a lot of money, so she'd go sit there for four hours um, and play her things. And so, I had seen that, that's very common across the United States, you see that everywhere. Um, and she, so she could use a Wi-Fi to do her homework, and eventually she asked me, She's like, oh, New York's great. I'd love to go to New York. And I said, well, you know, there's a lot of good schools. You should, you know, you could maybe, you know, play your cards right, end up in New York. And she goes, well, I, I can't leave. I'm, she was going to like East LA Community College, which is fine. Um, and I said, why can't you leave? And she goes, well, I'm my mother's translator. You know, like a lot of um, recent immigrants, her mom doesn't speak English. And the oldest daughter is tasked with being that role. So. You know, I think a lot about that story because I think she did the right thing. She's, she's staying with her family to help her mother because she's essential to the family, staying to keep the family together. But I think a lot of people would say, no, like, you know, that's the wrong choice. The other one I think about is a young African-American kid in another community college in Reno who could have gone out of state. He could have gone to quote, a better school. He was going to community college in Reno. But same sort of thing. I said, like, why are you here? He's like, "Uh, you know, my mom was an addict. Um, And then he went through a lot of stories about awful things. His father throwing his mom down the stairs, his mom being gone for three weeks when him and his brother were 12, 13, um, them basically living alone. And he's like, my mom, you know, she cashed in her four year chip the other day, and I need to be there for her. If I go, you know, she's going to relapse. Again, that's an admirable decision, and I think that's the right decision, but I think we as a, we, he's going to be, by the metric we measure success in this culture, he, he's going to be, he's going to be, um, he has to take a loss. He's taking a loss to help his mom. You know, and that's just, and both of them are, which is just mind-boggling that we've created a culture, a society where, you know, that's the wrong decision.
3: <laughs> can I, can I just add one thing, uh, uh, thinking about this divide that in many ways is reflected in educational decisions and opportunities. Um, you know, what strikes me is that uh, what Chris is describing kind of from the back row and what I'm describing from the front row is now what we see is, um, uh, in, the, in my book I compare this to um, strip mining, uh, the, the operation of strip mining, and many of us would, would st- sort of stand up in opposition to strip mining when you see what happens to a mountain when you tear off the top of the mountain, you completely devastate the physical natural environment. But in many ways, what we have actually organized and arranged in our society is a strip mining of human capital, of human potential, in the same way that you strip mine the potential of material resources, the institutions that I have frankly always taught at, so I'm pretty implicated in this, as probably many in in this room are because we simply participate in the system, uh, we are engaged in a process of identifying really valuable raw material. We do this through SAT scores and through letters of recommendation, and we identify the best pieces of, of, of uh, natural human resources in every human community, hamlet, town, city, in the entire world. We bring them to processing plants that we call elite universities. We process them, and then we put them in the stream of useful commerce where they can now become productive like a, like a nice piece of coal. But what do we leave behind? What do we leave behind in these towns and hamlets uh, it's not all that different in human terms uh what we leave behind when we strip mine uh a a, a mountain uh or 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 a countryside uh just last weekend my wife and daughter are here in the, in the second row i don't know where that puts them uh, <laughs> we we were in uh, Saugatuck, michigan and we sat down in a, in the a, 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 Incredibly, somewhat mild day like here in New York. This is a mild day for us uh, in, up in up in Michigan. Uh, and I sat down on a bench, and the bench said uh, it had a little sign on it. It said, "Dedicated to the memory of memory of Dr. R. J. Walker, uh, erected by his family and friends." And I got curious, and I looked online. Who was this R. J. Walker? And I discovered he'd been the town doctor, who had practiced in this town for about 60 years, uh, had you know read the number of births. The kids that he'd given you know that he'd uh, assisted into the world Uh, the number of clubs and organizations he was a member of probably a very prominent member of all these organizations in this little town of saugatuck michigan and i I can bet you with almost certitude that if 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 rj walker had been born today or 18 years ago he would have been swept up sent to an elite school and would never have returned home to a little town like saugatuck michigan and i really have to think i think we in the front row have to begin to ask ourselves, have we created a world in which the gifts that God and his wisdom has spread widely through the world? Have we created a world in which we are in some ways acting unjustly by reorganizing it so that all talent is geographically relocated in a very few places and it leaves behind an extraordinary form of devastation?
2: One of the things, um, I've I met those gifted kids in every, and we, basically every town has a little vacuum cleaner. It's basically, um, uh, the gifted program that sweeps up the kids and then sends them off to these schools. And I met a lot of them and they're great kids and you know, I can't fault them for the decision they make because the world they're living in. But I always think about, my daughter was one of those kids. Um, and in New York City, you can, um, you can get into any high school. It's basically a free for all. You, you have to test in and all this. And while my daughter was going through that part, she ended up in LaGuardia High School, which is a wonderful elite high school. Um, I was—if you read my book, there's these pictures of this kid doing leaps in the air. Um, His—I his, I, end up calling him Jose. the amazing, he was this 16-year-old kid who who did all these amazing. He would jump. He would do f- somersaults in midair. Um, uh, if you buy the book for the pictures of just Jose alone doing somersaults, but he was my feel-good project. While I was spending my time with heroin addicts, Jose was. This person, I would take these joyful pictures of doing flop, all oh, these wonderful, he was exactly my same daughter's age. He's lived in the Bronx, and I remember once I was picking him up to do our usual Sunday um, photo session of him doing flips. He's like, Chris, I really need you to do me a favor. I'm like, what, Jose? He goes, I need you to go to the police station for me. I'm like, why do you need me to go to the police station for you, Jose? He goes like, long story, about basically, he, had a, um, he was homeless, and he was staying with somebody who had stole his possessions and when he needed needed his books, his school books, he needed me to go get the police to go allow him to go in the house to get his possessions, um, so that he could study. Um, And all of a sudden this feel-good project has collapsed into the reality of of the streets he wouldn't, it was also interesting, he wouldn't go to the police station because he thought he was running some from, from warrants because he would jump the subway. He would sleep on the subway at night, so he would jump the, so he was scared to go get the police. Um, I ended up eventually going in and getting his books for him. Um, but here he was. Um, you know, I had to break into the house to get the books so he could actually study. And, um, but here he, here he was. This kid my daughter's age, competing for the same, you know, me and my wife at night are actually helping her navigate the system to get into this program. And this, is, and this kid, who is as bright as my daughter is, um, certainly as talented, is, is ended up in some, you know, basically, I did not apply high school. <laughs> and that was that. And so I think it's just, it's just so massively unfair. This, not only are we strip mining, but at the, we, at the top, have all these advantages. Not only do we define success, we deny meaning to those who don't agree with it. <laughs> you know? And then we stack the cards in their favor that the only way they could possibly, you know, we, talk, we say, just go get a, that's impossible for some people. You know, you, you, the tightrope you have to walk to get the resume to get into Harvard, it, it's just absurd. And, You know, I often think back to, like, how unfair it used to be, and it was very unfair. But it's almost like in an absurd system like a monarchy. You didn't pretend that there was a pathway to being a king. (laughs) And so, consequently, we pretend that anybody can succeed. The flip side of that is, if you fail, it's your fault. And so, people feel like losers. They feel stigmatized because they didn't make it. Never mind the fact that they had secondary everything. Never mind the fact that maybe like their family didn't like they they had an obligation to their family. But so why I use the classroom magic edu- thing? Is because they feel dumb. There are many times you know there's a per- there's multiple cases in my book of you know people who um, don't have high education. You know, some of them can't read. Um, And they all tell me up front, you're not gonna wanna hear what I'm saying, I'm dumb. I, I don't know my ABCs. And it's extraordinarily frustrating to me because, and one of the things I wish I had communicated better in this book is this gentleman, I think his name was Jerry Wise in Kentucky, who said, you don't wanna talk to me, I don't know my ABCs, was one of the most eloquent speakers he didn't know big words, but the thoughts he had were just beautiful. And similarly, there's this um, homeless woman, both Takesha, who is um, funny as hell when you listen to her. I mean, she's just, she's so eloquent. And I have a piece, of, I have a little part in this book of her writing about when, I, I'm not going to be able to recite it exactly, but she was, Ranting about Columbia University, paid her for a study where they injected her with cocaine. You know, you see them advertised on the subway. Pay three thousand dollars to come to this study. You know, and I remember writing down what she she ranted. It was effective I turned it into a poem because it was effectively a poem. It even had a play on the words of Columbia and Columbia, Colombian crack, Columbia University. But like. She can't read or write necessarily, she can read and write, but she can't, you know, she, she, she's not going to be able to fill out forms. And it's just so remarkably unfair that you have immensely talented people who are scared to compete or scared to contribute because they don't know the right words and they've been told all their life they're dumb. They really do feel like losers. And that stigma, you know, is is huge. I mean, it's, 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 it's being rejected. And it's just it's like... We've, we have a culture almost,
0: we've basically said, if you don't make it, you're dumb. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support.
1: So the the, uh, turn here a little bit to what might, you know, what's a way forward. Um, And I know there are no easy solutions. We've been talking about that in all of our conversations leading up to this. But uh, Patrick, in your your book, you quoted uh, Vaclav Havel saying, a better system will not automatically ensure a better life. In fact, the opposite is true. Only by creating a better life can a better system be developed. And I I was thinking of that, Chris, reading your book, um, where you were pointing out that so many of the formal institutions that we might think of as being set up to help or serve or assist, uh, many of the people in the communities you visited have a kind of soullessness to them. Um, I was really struck by your description of the place uh, with a inspirational sign that said, hope offered here, right next to a sign reading in all caps, please don't touch the TV. (laughs) Um, So I wonder if both of you could comment on just the the inadequacy of institutional thinking or too programmatic of a thinking and maybe talk about something that might suggest an approach that's more personal or that intends to um, the inherent human dignity of each person.
2: I guess I'll go first, but I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not just saying this, given the crowd. But I mean, I I started this project off as an atheist, um, and uh, it was almost, you know, in in these towns, in these communities I go to, the only thing that worked and were open often were churches, and McDonald's. That was the other. The the joke is, um, I saw this as a vegetarian atheist and now I'm a church going meat eater. Uh, (laughs) um, Thanks to churches and McDonald's. (laughs) Um, But, you know, one of the things I try to write about in the book is the experience of me going into these these churches. And they're not necessarily front row churches, they're small Pentecostal churches. They're. you know, the churches that were in a, someone's taken an old Kentucky Fried Chicken and turned it into a church. Someone's taken an old, um, I have a whole series of photos of, of places that have been turned into churches, um, like an old uh, furniture store and a strip mall in um, Amarillo. But there's no other way I can describe it as than the places had soul. You're in these neighborhoods and you spend in, the, the government institutions have harsh lighting, linoleum floors, signs that tell you what you can't do, <laughs> you know? It's just, it's a, uh, it's a secular hell. <laughs> it's just like, like, there's no fun there. There's no, there's no heart there. And then you immediately go into a church, you know, and again, I walked into a lot of churches where, you know, I don't think they've seen someone look like me come into their church. You know, I was often the only white person in the church, often sometimes the only person who spoke English in the church. Um sometimes I was the sole congregate in the church. <laughs> um, but I was always warmly welcomed. And it was it wasn't just it was just beyond the aesthetics, not things that you know when when a homeless addict comes into a church, you know, they know that there's certainly within the minority communities, they know that the other, the other, the other congregants in the church, and the people, and the people running the church, understand them in a lived reality. A lot of them have been there before. A lot of them actually, are look the same, have the same skin color, have gone through the same problems. So there's just not, there's not this, this condescending. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm jumping in here to help you. It's I get you, welcome, and that's huge. And I think. I'm gonna say this as agnostic, I think part of the solution is faith. You know, if you look at the three things, um, race, faith, and place, I mean, place, they've basically taken away from us, meaning the front row. You can't go, I don't know if you can go back. Um, Race is dangerous for a lot of reasons. And faith is one that, you know, is, is something that is there for everybody. And it really, is a great counterbalance to the kind of soullessness of, <laughs> of the front row.
3: So I, I've been struck, um, sitting here throughout the day last night, of the many quotes that have been displayed talking about ideology, often quoting Vaclav Havel, in fact, and the dangers of ideology. And really the argument in my book, uh, and I think I'm doing this from 30,000 feet, and Chris is doing it from about, you know, right on the ground, Uh, The argument in my book is that, unbeknownst to most of us, we live in an ideology. I mean, we think that we defeated ideologies, we defeated communism, we defeated fascism, but we live in in an ideology. That ideology is liberalism. It's the system that we all take for granted. That ideology basically argues that you are not free unless you are the 28 to 32-year-old, effectively your entire life. Freedom, liberty, consists in our capacity to be completely independent not to be reliant upon any other human being, and not to have any human being genuinely relying upon us, needing us, so that we have devised mechanisms, and uh, mechanisms to realize a kind of depersonalization, a systemic form of depersonalization. And we've spent all of our politics of the last 50 years arguing which depersonalized mechanism is better. Is it the market? And if it's the market, you're a Republican. Or is it the state providing various kind of welfare benefits? And if it's the state, you're a Democrat. And these last 50 or 60 years, we've thought, we have this great titanic political divide that defines us in America. Which depersonalized mechanism is the most <laughs> effective at liberating us from any genuine obligation that we have to anybody else? So I think the first thing is actually to see the water that we're swimming in. We are actually living in an ideology. We're actually living in a world that shapes us to assume a certain definition of freedom and to conform ourselves to that definition of freedom. And so the first thing is to see the nature of the water that we're swimming in, and then to resist the temptation to simply divide along these false partisan lines that necessarily put you in the camp of saying which depersonalized mechanism is better. And what has impressed me so much here today is all of the stories and the conversation that has really been effectively that. The resistance to ideology isn't necessarily World War Three. It's not fighting some titanic battle. It's what I heard this morning. The creation of Thread. J.D. Flynn talking about his, his children and having lots of people over for dinner. That, to me, is how you fight ideology. Uh, and I think uh, there's not one solution. It's gonna be many solutions that It will be many solutions that will draw on our special gifts uh, that I think we've seen in ample supply here uh, over the last two days. So I'll end with a
1: a question for Chris. Um, One of the more moving passages in dignity for me, and there were many phenomenal stories, but when you wrote that places like Hunts Point or Gary, Indiana had been literally left behind by people like me. There was a personalization to that that I think um, a significant part of the power of the book is the personal responsibility you took for for crossing that divide, Um, and I know you know not everybody you know can take three years off and and travel to these places, but I I think you know those of us in this room, if we're honest, most of us are are front row Americans, but I think. a lot of folks here are deeply moved and desire to cross these boundaries, so what if any you know, advice, not solutions, but advice might you offer to someone who s- would say, I want to do better. I want to cross that boundary. I don't want to assume that I know the solution
2: to everything. I want to know people. Um, the joke answer is buy my book and read it, <laughs> 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 um, but um, no, you know, I, I, get, I get lots of really beautiful emails and questions about that. And, uh, you know, I wish I had a better answer, but my basic point is, is to break out of your bubble. You know, um, and if you live in New York City, that's pretty easy to do. Um, get a subway, t- they don't have subway tokens anymore. Get a Metro card and just ride it to a stop and get off. And, you know, walk around. And uh, you'll be surprised what you see. Um, additionally, um, I'm gonna pitch McDonald's again, I don't own, I don't own any other stock. Um, you know, go to the McDonald's, you know, for safety reasons, you, some, some, of us, some, some of you may not feel comfortable walking in certain neighborhoods, um, but go to the McDonald's and quote the worst neighborhood in your town and sit there and talk. You know, and you'll find that you'll form friendships with people that you might not have originally wanted to form friendships with or in, in, Ever thought you could, but you don't have to either. The other thing I would keep on saying is, don't you don't have to like people you don't like. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you'll you'll form enemies too. <laughs> that's that's good. Um, but you know, this after I wrote my book, I ended up um, getting sent a, a book by a a man who recently deceased. His wife sent it to me. He was a hundred two two year old um, anthropologist who did exactly what I did but in the same McDonald's for 30 years he was a professor of anthropology and every every he, he went to the McDonald's in the bad side of town and just sat there and just ended up becoming forming these life this professor of anthropology forming intense friendships with you know people who had multiple felonies and he did it by simply sitting in the McDonald's um, and I think again I think you just you get out of your you get out of your comfort zone a little bit and, and just set. It takes time though, you can't, just do, you can't just go one day and solve everybody's problems. You know, just go there and just listen and watch. The other thing I would say is um, charity work, but, you know, charity work where you want to be there, not because you want to feel you have to absolve something, because you really want to be there. You know, it's because you really like doing it. Um, and don't be scared about getting more involved than you might think you know, is appropriate, um, you know, life is messy and um, it's not going to all be good, but that's part of the value of, you know, life is realizing, you know, I, I, I don't romanticize the back row in this book. There are bad people in the back row just like there are bad people in the front row. And one of the realities is when you spend time time with people you may not necessarily have spent time with it before is you realize that you know your faults as well as everybody else has faults
1: um thank you well, let's thank both uh chris and
0: patrick thank you for listening to the new york encounter podcast we hope you liked what you heard if you did please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners if you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.